0: It was when you came on your official visit They played like the old school movie With the four horsemen And uh, the old school Notre Dame And you got the And there's a now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there.
1: If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man,
2: it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll that always be the same. Well, I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the
0: wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh,
2: Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you are probably cost me around a drink.
0: From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome
1: everybody to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Indy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame won another thriller with a 32-29 victory at Virginia Tech on Saturday. A well-timed bye week should allow Irish fans to settle their blood pressure just a little bit for the time being. But Notre Dame has plenty of questions to continue monitoring when the weekly game schedule resumes next week against rival USC. The biggest question mark for Notre Dame all season long has certainly been its offensive line but the unit is coming off of its best performance of the season at Virginia Tech. Um, We are curious if that success can be sustained. And so we asked ESPN's Mike Golick Jr. to help us answer that question and many more on this week's podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me guys. Appreciate it.
1: Mike, to start out with on the offensive line, what did you like about the way Notre Dame's line played against Virginia Tech?
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I think, And a lot of this is, was aided by, you know, Tyler being in for as much of the game as he was, you know, we've certainly been well aware of all the different gifts and strengths of each of these quarterbacks, but the way it timed out for them in this game was this offensive line in a road environment needed someone that was going to buy them a couple extra hats. And you saw the effect that Tyler had on that. I thought, schematically, what they did differently, some of the quarterback run elements with Tyler in there allowed Notre Dame to lean heavy into double teams, to, to have guys have space to go out there and know they were getting help on certain blocks and to play a little more physical because of that. I, I think I think a couple of the guys just in general had better games than they'd had before. Uh, I, I, I hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name right. I'm getting used to the depth like everyone else this year, but I thought that was one of the better games that he had played. So far, and I think just in general, it was a little bit cleaner across the board, but that is definitely aided by the fact that you had a quarterback whose legs, forget, just were a threat but were a primary weapon for Notre Dame's run game for a lot of that.
2: So, Mike, as you kind of – as they kind of push forward into USC and North Carolina and those teams, is this something sustainable – only if they're playing Tyler Buckner a lot, or or did we see improvement when Cohn was in there in the fourth quarter that was encouraging?
0: Um, I think there was some protection improvement that was encouraging. I, I, I mean, I think it's always going to be tough just because you know Jack Jack does a lot of things really well. Jack, you know, getting the ball out on time, driving it downfield, what that to be able to come in cold at the end of that game and do what he did. Jack's got my respect forever that is a tough place to play football and do what he did but Jack also has I think trouble navigating the pocket sometimes in a way that doesn't help this offensive line out and I think the run game for him for everyone is a lot different in that and so I don't know how much of this I can project forward but that also depends on what the plan at quarterback is going to be going forward if there's going to be you know what Brian Kelly talked about going into Virginia Tech, hey, we want to stick with one guy, even though that didn't end up being the case, or are they going to continue
2: to try and platoon this thing? Okay. So if if Brian Kelly um called you up and said, you know what, I need your advice on the quarterbacks. I know you're an offensive lineman. What would you what would your advice to be for him? Would you say tag team him? Would you say, hey, let's see what Buckner looks like in the starting lineup? What what would, are your thoughts on that? I
0: would probably say, I mean, just committing to doing it the way you're doing it sort of as needed. If everyone's aware of that, like, I mean, hell, the offensive line I played on in 2012, we did that with Everett and Tommy. Like we did that a lot that season where, you know, you had a guy and Tommy come in as the veteran guy, really. I mean, kind of similar roles. Everett uh, wasn't as much of an every down run threat, but he was going to be able to get you out of some trouble with his legs back there. And we were all aware, like, That's the, I think, difficult part coming into this year with these guys is we were getting to know Ev, who was a redshirt freshman in that role. We all knew Tommy. We knew exactly where he was going to be, what he was about. And Jack's a veteran, but he's not a veteran with this team. And so I think that's a bit of a difficulty. But we saw like there was an aptitude for that style of game closer in what Jack was able to do there. He's got maturity as a veteran player to not, if he gets pulled from a game, sulk, become disinterested, do things. That's a credit to him and his football character that he stayed as engaged as he did. So he came back in and was able to make winning plays. And so if that's what it takes for this football team, because again, we know they've had to overcome some things injury-wise and production-wise from an offensive line that's still trying to figure it out right now. If you've got to keep doing that, I mean, listen. BK's worked with multiple quarterbacks in his system, and plenty of years before, and plenty of stops along the way. If that's working, and your football team has displayed an ability to be able to understand and work with that, then I, I don't see a huge problem with that. If it gives you your best chance to win,
1: Mike Brian Kelly has has been pretty adamant that the pass protection issues have extended beyond the offensive line, with maybe falling on the quarterback of not re- getting them in the right protections. Um, and obviously that may be more complicated with multiple quarterbacks. Obviously every quarterback needs to be on the same page and make sure they're on the same page with the offensive line. I'm, I'm curious, does that ring true to what you've, what you've observed? Obviously you don't know the the protection calls necessarily from just watching, but does it look like a unit that's had, tr- had troubles not identifying the right guys and they're blocking and, and, and working together like that?
0: Yeah. I thought this was the best game for the rise, quite frankly, for a unit up front where, I said, all right, even if there were things technically that broke down or things, you know, because, I mean, again, we got guys that shouldn't be on the field right now based on where their development is. These are need-based things based on injury, based on all these different elements. So sometimes the technical stuff can be excused in that way, but I was the thing you control, and this was the thing we were always preached, was it's got to be five guys seeing things through one set of eyes. And I thought this game overall – was the closest or the best that Notre Dame had done at that so far uh, against that defense again in a hostile environment where you got to extra communicate everything I I thought this was the best game for their eyes and seeing all that and I agree with coach and again going back to to Jack and it's not to belabor a point I mean all these guys you know Tyler's a young guy so I'm sure there's stuff that as far as the scheme of protection and what his element is in that you know I'd have to imagine. I don't know this, but I'd have to imagine Jarrett Patterson being the veteran he is, setting a lot of protections, doing a lot of the things that would normally fall on the center in an offensive line, especially a veteran one. Is just you know starting us off, telling who we're going to go to. I think that the quarterbacks do play a role in this, and I think there's been times where Jack, you know, whether it's his depth in the pocket, whether it's the spots that he chooses to try and you know step up, or or, or how he navigates that. Has at times put that offensive line in a tough spot. They have dealt that back to him. Like everybody's got a hand in this. The one guy I, I will absolve, I, you know, uh, Kyron Williams gets gets the pass for me on this one. Kyron remains. Except I have to anyone who will listen, I remind people Kyron Williams is is such a treasure. We need to value him. The yards aren't going to be there in the same ways this year because of how this has changed. I saw Kyron miss like blatantly miss one protection. I want to say it was in the Purdue game in a way that like rocked me to my core. Cause I didn't okay. think it was possible. And again, I don't know the protection specifically, but just kind of understanding general rules. I looked at that and I go, all right, I can theorize that this was on Kyron and I did not know that was physically possible. So it's a good reminder that he is human, even if he is a special pass protecting unicorn at running back.
2: Is it, aren't you, going to be him for Halloween? You have a Halloween costume, Kyron?
0: (laughs) I I don't think I have good enough hair to be Kyron for Halloween or good enough shakes in public. Me me trying to get someone off balance on the street trick-or-cheating would not look the same as Kyron somehow managing to get every person he's ever come in contact with on the field on skates.
2: Well, I got an idea from you, and I'm borrowing it from Kyron. When he was a little kid, I can't remember the running back, but it was somebody with the Rams was his idol and he stole his sister's Dora the Explorer wig and, and wore that underneath his helmet so that he had hair coming out the back. I think, I think, I think it was Steven Jackson. I think Steven that was Jackson. His, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh man. That's uh, God. You know what? Knowing that he was looking up to Steven Jackson makes some of the running style things with Tyron make a lot more sense too. So that's, that's listen, that's why, that's why you guys are the best, but uh yeah, no, I can listen. The last time I had a wig, um, (laughs) Dr. Pepper sent me like a jar that had you know the little sweet character. Yeah, Uh they sent me that for Halloween that costume, and I'm not going to lie, I put the Dr. Pepper uh, purple colored wig on here. Felt pretty good about myself. Got to throw (laughs) my hair in a ponytail for the first time since 2008.
2: That's funny. You know, you were you were. We keep kind of going back to the quarterbacks, and I had to kind of look back at the 2012 season because I thought. I thought the tag team was a little bit more regular. There were games Tommy didn't play. There were games he played a ton, like the Michigan game. You guys wouldn't have won that without him, and probably Purdue, too, at the end. But um, what did you guys think as a team when Brian Kelly said, this is what we're going to do this year? You know, he was suspended for the Navy game, and then he played in the Purdue game. What What's, what's running through your mind? Did you think it was a good idea, or did you say, well, let's see, or – what was your thoughts? We we trusted everyone
0: involved with all that. Like again, that was where, that was, and I mean, in, in so many ways, we were a different group. I mean, that was a, a veteran line. I mean, I had I had played the least out of that group, but from Braxton over, you know, him, Watt, and Zach had played a ton of football. Me and Lombard had been around. Tommy had played a ton of football, and you know, we like the mentality for us, and I think the mentality for for you know for every O line that's operating at peak is like we don't care who's back there. As long as we understand, like we knew Tommy was going to get us in the right check every time. He wasn't going to get you out of trouble with his legs, but Tommy was going to have all of us in the right spot and be where we wanted them in the back of that pocket. And we knew on the other side, Ev was going to make plays for us. Ev was calm and was going to make plays. And so for us, we just, we understood the strengths of each guy and you know, where, where they might not offer as much so well. And we had a lot of confidence in ourselves. You know, we were, you know, a team that was going to be a a largely run first outfit that year. Most games we were a 200 to 200 team. And so I think that with just like the, the veteran understanding we had that year of who everyone involved was and what they did well, that's so different for this year. You know, so many new starters on that group up front quarterback who's coming in as a transfer player here, a young player like Tyler drew getting mixed into there. Also like the circumstances are different, but the mentality when it works well is we don't care who's back there because at the end of the day, we still got to go out there and block them. And for this group especially, that's, that's I'd imagine where the mentality is, knowing some of the guys in that room, knowing what standard is there, is that offensive line is going to say, hey, trot out there, whoever you need to to get the job done. We've got to go out there and block them. And that's been the charge. That's been what we've been looking to see steady improvement this year.
1: Mike, you mentioned Chris Watt, who was on that offensive line, and he has become yeah. a – central figure in the discourse about Notre Dame's offensive line on message boards this year um, because he was a GA last season and Notre Dame's offensive line had success. Some, some critics of Jeff Quinn have argued that the success last season is more due to Chris Watt uh, than Jeff Quinn. I'm curious, how fair do you think that is? Um, what kind of impact do you think Chris Watt had on, on the offensive line last year? And just maybe more broadly, what, what does a GA normally bring to an offensive line that can really help them out?
0: Yeah. I, and first and foremost, you know, I, I've gotten to know Jeff a little bit. I think he's a great guy. And so I, you know, I, I'm not here to engage in any of those discussions If other people want to, you know, hire or fire a coach and do that. They, they can do that. That's not going to be uh, that's not going to be my world on this one. I can tell you what the GA does is a lot of the day-to-day stuff in there. And it's kind of like, that other ear you can go to when your coach is, you know, done. I mean, you got so many hours that you're allowed to spend with a coach. GA is the guy you can get to stay after practice with you, to stay after and watch film with you a little bit. And especially for a guy as young as Watt, and just you know, knowing who he is, like that was that was our hallmark as a unit. Was hey, we're going to be around here longer than everybody else. We're going to be here together, and so. Watt understands the standard that those guys are, you know, are working under. He understands that as intimately as anyone. So there's no doubt he was a huge asset just because I know a, the kind of player Watt was and the kind of influence he was on the room as a player. And so he would absolutely, you know, have an impact on that room in a positive way here. That's not again, taking credit or assigning blame or anything like that, but it's just saying, I, I know what kind of a dude Watt is. And in that GA role, it can sometimes be, you know, the good cop when you need it here or someone that can spend a little more extra time, especially with young guys. That's kind of, you know, whether it's a GA at that level, whether it's an assistant at the NFL level, like that's kind of the, the operating role there. And so, you know, that, that's I'm sure what Wadi offered in that room in addition to, you know, just an extra set of quality eyes. That's the other thing. Like Coach Quinn can only see so much in every drill. And so to have an extra set of quality eyes around there whenever you've got the GAs there, in addition, you know, having to set everything else up, I mean, that is not a glorious lifestyle to say the least, but if anyone's used to putting their hand in the pile and doing the work, it's, it's what it's been, you know, I, am just a different note. It's been fun to watch. I got to cover Tulane's game at Ole Miss and see Watt there and, and watch his unit. And it's just, it's fun to see the success that he's had in all of this. I think is going to do a really good job with this long-term because, you know, it, it, it matters a lot to him. Like I, I always know that much about Chris Watts football character and, and who that guy is. And, it matters a ton to him. He has that standard in him firmly ingrained, and you see that you know show up with the guys that he's working with this year too, which is pretty cool.
2: Mike, when you kind of look at the talent of this offensive line, and this is kind of a convoluted question, but you know, the, there's all Joe All, Blake Fisher, Rocco Spindler, you know, the, these freshmen, and then there's the redshirt freshman Carmody and Baker. When you look at those five, they seem like Guys that are high end talent guys down the road. So, so now let me dial it back to when you were a younger player and Zach Martin comes in, I think a year after you did. Um, and he plays four years, but he redshirted that first year. So, let's say Watt and Zach Martin played as true freshmen, would they have struggled?
0: Um, yeah, they would have struggled. I mean, every freshman's going to struggle. Now, that being said, there were things about Zach, like Zach Martin was always going to do better than most. Like you yeah. saw things that I'll never forget. We were in practice one time. Frank Ferducci was our coach at that point on the O line, Zach's redshirt year, and he had watched Zach and Watt in practice. Basically, their body lean on pass sets. They did things naturally that Frank looked at and said, "Like that, that's it." And we were, you know, doing a drill after that for everyone else. To try and internalize through reps the things that those guys did naturally as players so they were always built a little bit different I mean Zach's the best football player I've ever played with or against so that guy was always going to be a little bit different but yeah he would have struggled I mean he came in as a lighter guy too he was 275 280 his freshman year had to put on a bunch of weight in those couple first couple off seasons so that is yeah absolutely natural for young guys to, to
2: come in and struggle so when you look at I mean, you only saw half of Fisher, but I, I think you saw him in at least a practice. And you look at those guys, do you say, man, they're they're gonna turn into something pretty special at some point? Do you do you see that kind of talent with that group?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, talent wise, hell, we, we haven't had a lot of dudes that look like Blake. <laughs> like yeah. you know, we got a lot of re- we got a lot of really good dudes, but I, I think they were guys that kind of had to grow into it, right? Like Ronnie, other world, you know, freak athlete, big long tools and all that. Ronnie had to do some growing when he got to school. You know, um, McGlinchey, you know, was a converted tight end from high school that they had to stack weight on. Like Mike had to progress to that point. Zach had to progress to that point. Like, you know, ability-wise, I mean, maybe you're talking like Q, who was a mutant from day one sort of thing. But (laughs) I I think Blake's in in rarefied air talent-wise. And you saw in the Florida State game to start, like, natural athleticism so difficult to get around because he's so damn big you know throws his hands like he's trying to land a haymaker and kill you on those punches and so that's one of those guys you get excited because he walks you know he's he came out of the hospital with more ability than most and so when you just put some of the polish that we know happens in that position room specifically he's a fun one to think about you hope that he can get healthy soon and, and you know whatever that looks like for this season I mean He's a guy where, especially when that's the case, where you know all the talents there, is every rep matters so much for all these guys right now. And I know we've seen a lot of bodies go through, and it's painful now, but those are the kind of things that a year or two down the road, meaningful snaps for these guys in big-time games. like That was, I mean, again, for a guy that sat so many years before I finally got starting potential, the last four games that I played because of injury, my true senior year before my fifth year, were a huge benefit going into that next season because there's just a jump up in speed you can never replicate in practice. And so for me, you know, technically being a veteran guy, but only having those starts to draw on, there were things even that fifth year when things were going well. I was learning on the fly. And so for those guys to have a chance this young to bankroll some of those reps is massive.
1: Mike, in that 2012 season, you guys were able to navigate a lot of close calls and, and tight finishes. And certainly this 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 season has had its its share of close calls as well. I'm curious, how does a team sort of handle the stress of that? Is there confidence gained in that? What what sort of is the result of, of sort of living <laughs> living in the in the last few minutes of a fourth quarter on a consistent basis?
0: Yeah, I, I just believe you can do it. Like the, the teams I was on early in my time at Notre Dame, there was – and this is not, a, again, a discredit to, you know, Coach Weiss or any of the guys in that roster. It was just we had, we had had a tough time winning a lot of those games. And so you get into the fourth quarter of those games – And it's like, man, here we go again. Like we're we're in a battle with Syracuse or UConn or Tulsa, like one of these teams we shouldn't be losing to, but we are. And and you got to just kind of get through the wall. And thankfully for this team, like you got a lot of guys who have played in a lot of big time football games who believe they can win in those moments. And so if you got young guys in this team that are learning how like to be able to look over at some of these veteran players and draw that confidence there, like to have Kyle Hamilton on the other side of the football, Kurt Heinisch to have Jarrett Patterson in the offensive huddle, and Michael Mayer, and the, you know, having players, first off, of that caliber talent-wise here, like, man, I can tell you, there is no greater confidence builder in the world than looking on the other side of the line and knowing Zach Martin is going to block whoever comes over there, or looking out at the number one defense in college football for most of the season and knowing you're going to get the ball back. So you got good players that you can draw that from on this team first and foremost, but there really is no substitute for just in those moments, like belief translates into calm conversations on the sideline, because in those moments, it's about being able to have constructive dialogue. We always wanted to come back to the sideline. What did you see? How did it happen? How does that compare with what coach saw from the sideline? And so by having veteran players who can one show young guys how to have those conversations huge for those moments, but then just to the time under task that they have in similar environments, that's not new to them. That's not something they had to learn how to do. And so that's something that young guys can look to and first learn how to do. And then, you know, they've got someone to see them through those, you know, it's, it's just like a rep on the field, but getting those reps at communicating in a high stress environment on the sideline and having to make the necessary adjustments like that.
2: Okay. So when I went down to San Antonio the year that you guys, there were a ton of you down at the All-American Bowl. And I remember yeah. meeting you down there and I thought, what a nice kid, but he looks like he's a high school football player, you know, yeah. where some of those guys are pretty advanced physically. And then here you are starting for a team that's playing for a national championship five years later. And my my take on that was you must have worked your butt off to get to that point. And I wonder what your process was and how you stayed patient on that journey, because I, I think what you did was um, amazing.
0: Yeah, it was, uh it, I mean, listen, I, I was, I think a lot of things, I was always pretty aware of what I was physically and, and the limitations I had there. So you know, it was, it was controlling what you could control. It was attacking the weight room in every way I could. It was, it was, you know, trying to just constantly make sure that whenever the opportunity came that I was there to show that, yeah, what I lacked physically, I was going to make up for with my approach mentally. And I, I, you know, I, I hope that and the work ethic always stuck out because I knew I always had the, you know, the nepotism thing. It's just like being in sports media now where, you kind of had to work through what people's perception of you was in a lot of those things and then have thick skin. Like, you know, hell, I had seen the stuff that got said about me on message boards, even my fifth year and stuff like I, you're, you're human, you know, what's going on in that spot. And so having my brother on the team was huge for that too. We were both guys struggling to find playing time. Jake's was a lot more driven by injury. And so just being able to talk to someone like that, having the bedrock of guys around me on that team to help out with all that stuff. And then you know, I, I, you know, we had cycled through, I mean, we had four O-line coaches in five years. And when Coach Easton got there in my fifth year, you know, he, he believed in me. Like I, I he knew I was going to give him everything. I knew I was going to get everything from him. And there were tough conversations that we had to have. That was not always easy to go through, but it was, you know, his belief in me and trusting me in some of those spots combined with just saying, all right, like, listen, I, I didn't know what was guaranteed, like what happened with Braxton that year before and him getting hurt at Wake Forest, like took that opportunity, ran with it as best I could, always wanted to be prepared whenever that moment came and, and felt like I was. And then the next year it was, Hey man, I got to convince them not to you know, start Nick Martin over me. Who's going to end up going on to be a multi-year pro and a great <laughs> starter for Notre Dame, who was, you know, a, a, a freshman that season. And, 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 you know, it was, I, I don't, I don't know what did it. Like I, I obviously coming in with the the love of Notre Dame that I had, like it was, it was always home. It was home in a different way for me than I think for, for a lot of guys that come there, especially in, in the era of modern recruiting. And so, you know, in, in thinking about going into that you're like, was I going to have to transfer if I wanted to go play somewhere? Was I going to be able to make it and, and stick it out here? And, you know, I, I will be indebted to to a lot of people involved in that process, but certainly to, to Coach Easton for for the belief that he had in me, which you know that extended after I got done playing too. That's that's you know uh, uh, someone who, when when you bought in with him and and did those things together that was a, a forever thing. Like he, he's going to be in your corner in a lot of ways. And so I, I know it's a long answer to say, I have no idea. You just, you know, <laughs> you do what everyone does. You, you, you show up and work, you put one foot in front of the other every day around there and, and try to in, enjoy the ride along the way. I mean, I dreamed of doing that my whole life and, and got the opportunity. And again, you know, I, I, it sucks that it had to come because of injury, especially to a guy I know in Braxton, but that, that really opened up a chance for me to live out a dream of mine. And I, I hold tight to the, the, you know, 17 starts that I ended up with and, and, and how that kind of shaped a lot of my life since. So super grateful for a, a lot of people and the faith they put in me.
1: Mike, we've asked a lot of serious questions, but let's get to the real important stuff. You've been doing a lot of traveling for college football this season. I'm curious, what has been your best meal on the road so far?
0: Ooh, great question. Great question. Um, you know what? I really fell in love with the gas station chicken situation down in Oxford, <laughs> Mississippi. Right. I was told about it going into it. And like, I know everyone has the same reaction when you tell them, but I had it on a reliable source from a friend of mine. That's like, Hey, you go down there. This is, this is a win in Rome type deal. I had four gas station meals down there. I'm telling you, Bark on ribs should not be that robust at a a place where you can also get diesel fuel. Like it just shouldn't happen, but it did. And so, yeah, enjoyed that one. The Oxford creamery down there. I mean, anytime you can find like the combo ice cream and gas station barbecue situation that I was able to track down, down there, it leaves an imprint on your heart and on your intestines.
1: (laughs) All right, Mike, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us this week and, uh, uh have some safe travels the rest of this college football season.
0: Appreciate it guys. Good catching up with you.
1: All right. Now it's time for place your bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for the rest of Notre Dame season. Um, and, and for this, I made clear to Eric, to be clear to the audience, these are, this is this is. These are comparing the stats for the rest of the games. It, it's not does not count the first six games. So, first one I have for us, Eric, is more rushing yards: Tyler Buckner
2: or Chris Tyree? Well, Chris Tyree doesn't have that big, long, ninety-some-yard run that I think he's going to get. You know, when I weighed this, I wondered, you know, is is uh, Chris's turf toe injury short-term or longer-term? But you know Buckner runs so hard he gets hurt too. Um, I just think there's gonna be more of a commitment to getting Buckner involved. Uh, so I'm gonna say Buckner wins that one.
1: yeah this this was a tough one f- for me I, 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 although I, I'm gonna agree with you. I was curious which way you would go. Uh, we're, like you mentioned, we're not sure what how long Tyree will be impacted by turf toe. Tyler was also Tyler Buckner was also banged up towards the end of that game as well. I'm not sure if he was able to come back in or if Brian Kelly just knew that he needed Jack Cohn in that situation. That um, wasn't exactly clear
2: um, He post-game. kind of inferred that at one point he told Tommy, we're, just leave him in and we're going to call your call sheet. But he didn't make it clear, but that was what I in, I inferred from what he said. Sure. So, I, I, yeah, I think still like rega-
1: – I mean, uh, putting the the injury questions aside, I think Buckner's rushing yards are more predictable and assured than Tyree's will be. Um, so I will go with Buckner to for anyone that's curious and isn't aware, Buckner's rushed for 167 yards and he playing in the first in four games of the first six games, and Tyree has only rushed for 112 yards in six games. So
2: honestly, Buckner's yards help Tyree's yards.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they do, right? Yeah. So I think. If Buckner's in there more, obviously he's going he's gonna to get more yards, but I think Chris Tyree's yardage will increase as well with Buckner in there. So um, I'm curious to see how it plays out, but I would um, wager my bet on Tyler Buckner ending up with more rushing yards in the next six or seven games. Next question is from uh, – ne- not from anyone, it's from me. Um, the, next, the next bet I have is an over-under
2: of seven-and-a-half sacks for Isaiah Foskey. So he's averaging a sack a game, which would, in 13 games, would put him at 13, which would be a half sack behind Justin Tuck's school record. So you're asking, is he going to get the school record? Because over would put him at 14. Right. Um, I looked at the teams that they still have to play, the six teams, and USC is 16th in the country in sacks allowed, which is – really good protection and then it's awful it's 124 125 117 84 78 but it's not like they played great teams with protection either up to this point so it's really going to be tight on that and i did this earlier in the day and that particular question and i don't know what i decided i said (laughs) yes i decided you know what let's just go for it and say yes My theory, too, is that they're going to, I mean, Foskey would have more sacks now, especially in the Virginia Tech game, had there been contain on the other side and they had to deal with Foskey, but they could run away and leak out the other side. I think if they started playing Botello and Foskey together, um, if Myron were a little bit better with his contain on that side or whoever happened to be in, So I'm thinking they're going to get that figured out and that will help Foskey. So that's why I rolled the dice and said, yes.
1: Yeah. I think I'm going to go under, although I don't feel great about it. I I always seem to overestimate sack totals. So I think that's sort of uh, pushing me away from being convicted and saying over that he would, he would tie or break uh, or he would break. If he goes over uh, Justin Tuck's single season record at Notre Dame, it seems attainable. Um, because uh, to me, one thing that st- stands out about Isaiah Foskey, he, he hasn't had like the like the multi sack game yet. I mean, usually a lot of a lot of pass rushers usually end up with a couple of games where they have uh, two sacks, or I mean, even maybe there's one game where they have three or four sacks, depending on how crazy uh, good they're playing. Um, so, I, so I think, I mean, if he has one game like that, I think this makes this extremely attainable, Just keeping a one sack per game pace. Um, or it would have to be slightly ahead of that, Um, doesn't seem unreasonable, but I'm just not sure that he will get there, so I'm going to go with under. Next bet is more receiving touchdowns, Kevin Austin Jr. or Michael Mayer?
2: Assuming Michael Mayer is healthy, and I'm going to assume that, or healthy enough to play, I think Michael's just an easier target in the end zone. I I realize people are going to pay attention to him. And Kevin's going to get some of those longer um, touchdown catches. Like I thought his long one from Tyler Buckner, I thought he had danced close enough to get into the end zone on that. Right. But I still think Michael Mayer's the touchdown machine. I think he's going to break the record for tight ends, touchdowns this year. And I know it, they both it, have the same amount now. Right. Yeah. I think I'm in
1: agreement with you. I, I the, the concern about, Austin, maybe beating him would be the, those, those longer touchdowns that you pointed out. And I think I'm not sure that I totally trust this offense to like execute in the red zone consistently, though they did that against Virginia Tech, which was sort of bucking the trend um, as they aren't even necessarily getting to the red zone a lot. Um, so I think that leads you to believe there's a chance that Austin can continue to score from outside the red zone. Um, but I, I, I still it's, it's it's hard for me to shoot go against Michael Mayer and in a bet like that. So I'm going to go with Michael Mayer as well. Next one is over under three and a half interceptions for Kyle Hamilton.
2: Well, when you look at the six teams, they play Navy, doesn't throw the ball that much. Um, and they have two interceptions and then everybody else it's five, 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 six, and seven, which are all in the lower half in terms of fewest interceptions. That's how that stat reads. It's, if you're number one in the nation and interceptions thrown, you have zero. You're so it's like golf, you want the lower score. Yeah, all those are in the bottom half, so none of those are good. The the thing about Hamilton is it seems like a couple teams have kind of figured out how to kind of stay away from him. And and he had two of his interceptions in one game, the opener, and sometimes they come in bunches. And I I just think those teams are savvy enough where he's not going to get the over on that. I think he's going to be close, but I don't think he gets the over.
1: Yeah. It seems like Notre Dame's playing him a lot in some slot coverage and that like takes him out of like the ball hawking safety spot. Like obviously he can still make plays on the ball. if Someone throws at the guy he's, he's, he's lining up against, but um, that does eliminate the chance of him making like an interception that he made against Florida state where he's on the other side of the field and runs all the way across the field to make an interception on the sideline. But I'm still going to take the over. I think he's had some close calls that didn't end up as interceptions that I think he will continue to have, even though um, he wasn't able to maybe convert on some of those. I still don't understand how the Toledo one wasn't an interception. I watched that replay a bunch of times, and I don't see how it's clear that the ball touched the ground. Um, so I, I think he'll take advantage of the opportunities that he will get and, and manage to get over three-and-a-half interceptions the rest of the way. Our last prop bet is more tackles: Isaiah Pryor or Jack
2: Kaiser. Well, Pryor started games one, two, and three. Kaiser started four, five, and six. They both have twenty-one tackles. Kaiser plays about double the snaps, maybe not quite double, but significantly more. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, especially with Kaiser starting lately, I say he will end up with more tackles.
1: Yeah, this one was a real toss-up for me. The Prior, the fact that Kaiser's played more snaps almost speaks maybe more highly of Prior that when he's in there, he's making more plays. Um, and I, I, I considered taking Prior, but I just think Kaiser's going to have more opportunities. Um, and uh, there is still the potential. We don't really know what's going to happen if he could maybe play some bowl linebacker because they, Brian Kelly keeps saying that they need to get J.D. Bertrand some rest, and then not resting J.D. Bertrand. So I think after the bye week, they have to have a better plan for that whether that involves Kaiser playing some Will linebacker um, and, and cross-training between Will and Rover, or maybe that's Prince Kali playing some Will linebacker. They, they need to do something there. Um, and I think if, if Kaiser takes any reps at Will linebacker, I think that's going to be, provide for easier opportunities to make some tackles. So I will go with Kaiser
0: as well. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to
1: talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hansen NDI. First one I have for us is from at Ryan underscore Sakoviak. Are we
2: approaching Golson Reese 2012 status with Buckner Cohn this year? Um, well, it would be we haven't seen Buckner start, so I think that would be right. more the case. You know, I went back and looked at um, the 2012 season because it wasn't as clear in my mind. And Tommy threw 59 passes that year, and and the majority of them, 38 out of 59, came in three games. He had four games. He didn't throw any. Um, he had to play one entire game, which was the BYU game, uh, because Everett had a concussion from the game before, and he threw 16 passes. That's the most he threw in a game. The other thing that was different about that was Everett stunk as a runner at the beginning of the year. He was a guy that was really fast and shifty, but when he was in high school, he was a prolific passer, and he used his legs to extend plays. He didn't run a lot, and so him getting used to zone read and that stuff After four games, he had minus 11 yards for the season. And then in the Miami game in Chicago was when he started becoming comfortable as a ball carrier. So there's a little bit difference to it. And I I think, too, this was planned kind of going into the season, and they kind of committed to it, even though Reese didn't play in the last two games, the USC game or the bowl game against or the championship game against Alabama. I think this is they're trying to figure it out. Um, I think this is more like 2011 would have looked like, had Golson played that year, because yeah. he wasn't ready. Um, and and he, in 2012. So I I think the parallels are different. I think the the chemistry between the quarterbacks is good. The other interesting thing was, Golson ended up with a better pass efficiency rating than did Tommy that year.
1: Yeah, I, I, I understand the comparisons, but I, I, I don't necessarily think it's that similar exactly. And I'm also, I mean, I, frankly, I mean, if Cone is going to continue to be a starter, I mean, I, I throws sort of the comparison off, in my opinion, completely. Um, and that seems like the most likely outcome. I don't know that I believe that that's the best plan necessarily. I don't know that I'm, that I'm sold on Cone continuing to start out. Um, and so that's like the reverse of what the Golson reese situation would have been. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure that Brian Kelly has a complete grasp of how the, the, the rest of this season is going to play out at quarterback. Um, so, um, and like you said, I think the Golson Reese thing was, I think they had a better understanding of what that was than what, what this is. And so that's, the, I think those are probably the biggest differences. So I do think we're going to see plenty of both the rest of the way though. Next question is from Chris Fleck at Chris
2: Fleck one How many games does each quarterback start over the next six games? You know, I tried to kind of guess that before we started recording, and now I'm starting to second guess myself. <laughs> I had Cone 4 and Tyler Buckner 2. And the thing about it is Pine could still end up starting or playing in a game just based on the fact that each of these quarterbacks have been injured. Right at some point. Um, so maybe I'm my calculations are off. I, you know, especially after we t- talked to Mike Golick Jr., now I'm getting more of the sense that BK is closer to starting Tyler Buckner than maybe I realized. And I think some of it's going to be just how he practices and how he adapts to getting more of the playbook because BK, want, Brian Kelly wants him. To have access to the other parts of the playbook, not just the Wildcat package, so I'm going to change my answer and go three and three.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a true guess. I don't know that we have any idea how this is (laughs) going to play out.
2: (laughs) Boy, that that (laughs) didn't mine sound like a guess. (laughs) No, you definitely covered that well. I, I
1: I don't, I just don't know. I, I mean. I went with what you had your first inclination was was cone for Buckner two. That was sort of my way of looking at it. But yeah, I think Drew Pine could start a game still. Um, I, I, we didn't talk too much about why, what Pine didn't play in the post game because there, I mean, the game was too, what happened in the game was too important to, we had to sort of cover all that ground before we could sort of like, well, why didn't Drew Pine play today? It's like, well, we got too much other things
2: to discuss right now, but I'm curious between the lines a little bit because Kelly said that the cone in the fourth quarter was the cone he sees in practice every day
1: right yeah and I, I I asked him like is this like is that is what we saw there is like is that why you're so insistent on starting Jack Cone I didn't say it in that way but that was sort of like my way of thinking about it because I mean it makes more sense the way Jack Cone has finished that game and finished the Toledo game like that's what they see in him but for whatever reason, they can't get that out of him always at the start of games. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I think they're going to they're going to try to continue starting Jack Cohn until they feel like they can't do it anymore. That's, that seems to be – after this past week, that seems to be painfully obvious to me, um, although I don't know that anything is truly obvious with how this quarterback situation is going to play out. So um, a lot of words to not really know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> my guess is come for Buckner, too. Uh, next question is from at Brett Kovac. Notre Dame set a season high with 180 rushing yards against Virginia Tech. Do you think they beat that number this year, or will that finish as the season high?
2: Um, they don't play a lot of good – they don't play a lot of good rushing defenses the rest of the year. No, Navy's, Navy's the best one, and that's 45. And they, and they play two really awful ones at Georgia Tech and Stanford. Um. And, and if there's a commitment to Tyler Buckner, not only are you getting his plus rushing yardage, you're not getting the sack yardage. He hasn't been sacked yet. Um, and and then it opens up things for the running backs in the running game. It also probably would open up a jet sweep better. Um, so I'm going to say yes. I, I mean, the big positive for me, too, was this was the first game they rushed for more than four yards a carry as a team. And so, yes, I do think that there's games that they'll get better. And I I think the line will get better.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, uh, what goes a long way in allowing them to um, rush the way they did was not allowing those negative plays and they had zero negative design run plays. There had two plays that were tackled for loss. um, And those were both sack. Those were the Jack Cohn sacks in the first three series. Um, after that, Kyron Williams was tackled for a loss on one play, but that was also the same play where I believe it was Andrew Kristoffic got called for clipping. Um, someone got called for clipping. I'm not positive. Yeah, it was Kristoffic. Um, and so, so that sort of wipes the play off. It doesn't actually count as a play. They just take the penalty yardage. So, I, I think, and certainly Tyler Buckner has a big is a big reason why that is possible because the, the, there's going to be fewer plays made from the backside because they have to respect Tyler Buckner's potential to keep it and run so I think there's a chance they can break 200 yards maybe a couple times a season Stanford and Virginia have are both averaging allowing over 200 yards per game Um, and then UNC is not great they give up 159 but there's obviously a big gap there between UNC and Virginia and Stanford so I think that um, Notre Dame should have a a pretty decent chance to do that as long as they're because I think they're going to be committed to it they know that they need to do this and I even like against Virginia, Virginia wants to throw the ball a lot. So I think it'd be in their best interest to sort of keep the ball on the ground a bit um, and sort of control the game clock. If they can, obviously that's not necessarily what Notre Dame's winning recipe has been this season, but I think um, if they can do that, they're going to try to. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ 6008. Do you expect the offensive line to continue to improve and build on the performance against Virginia tech? And if it was a one-off and the line struggles the rest of the way, how much jeopardy is Jeff Quinn in?
2: You know, I, I thought that they improved, and I felt like we would start to see improvement as long as we saw some consistency in personnel. I, I think if I think Alt did a really good job, and maybe he's the best of the healthy options there. But when you take fourth string of any position, how good of quality are you going to get? I, I think Notre Dame got lucky because I think Alt is pretty talented. I read Tyler James's story today about his process, and I feel more confident about that. And I do like and in there better than I like Carell. I thought, other than the clip, he played better. Um, and so I kind of like that left side of the line. Then Mike Golick Jr. gets on there, and I ask him about sustaining that. He's like, oh, I don't know. And, <laughs> uh, maybe second-guess myself a little bit. As far as... You know, hot water for Jeff Quinn. You know, I don't think Brian Kelly during the season looks at those things that way. I think he had to with Van Gorder because it was such a disaster for the first two years, and and Brian knew, and it, and it just the wheels fell off, um, and so he had to fire him in the season. And I think the other time where he knew that he was going to get rid of somebody was Chip Long. Um, because he had certain parameters going into the year. And it wasn't about Chip's performance in terms of play calling. It was about Chip's performance in dealing with players. And Brian Kelly had kind of had it after the Michigan game. He was on the bus on, on the way home, and he was making phone calls, talking to possible replacements the next day. But I think, other than those two instances, he likes to wait till the end of the season. And I think coaches' mentality is more about how do we fix this than what am I going to do next year? And I think everybody gets evaluated. But, you know, if you look at the large picture with Brian Kelly and Jeff Quinn's history, you know, I wrote about this that, you know, they've, this will be the first year that they've, I think, been below. Number forty-five in total offense at the FBS level, and that's with three Central Michigan teams and three Cincinnati teams, um, and and then the the um, three that he's had at Notre Dame prior to this year. So nine years, they've been never lower than forty-five in total offense. That's a long good track record. Together in their last forty-nine games at Grand Valley State, they were forty-seven and two. Now, football evolves, it changes, and maybe Jeff Quinn needs to make some changes in the way he coaches, and maybe, you know, that grad assistant needs to be Chris Watt level. Uh, but I wouldn't say he's in hot water, but I know Brian Kelly wants to win, and if he thought Jeff did a terrible job, then he wouldn't hesitate to to make that change. But right now, I just think it's really hard to evaluate that.
1: Yeah, I I, I it seems like we're asked this question every week or less uh, about Jeff Quinn. I, and so I, I don't know. I don't know how to quantify how much jeopardy is in. Is he in jeopardy or double jeopardy or <laughs> double, secret double secret probation? probation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I think his job is on the line. If Brian Kelly believes he can't get this line back to playing at its high standard, uh, these next seven games will certainly be important in judging that. Um and so I think we're probably going to get plenty of questions of what, whether we think Jeff Quinn should be fired until he is, is, or isn't fired. Um, so I don't know that this question's going away, but as for the offensive line improvement, I think it should continue to improve. Um, like you mentioned, the personnel, if they, if they decide, okay, let's go with Joe Alt and Andrew Kristoffik and let's figure this out. And maybe, maybe Kane Madden and Josh Lugger are, are, are finding improvements and getting a better sense of what they need to be doing. And, shaking off some of the issues they've had at the beginning of the year that you can see this offensive line getting better. Will this line be consistently better? Like, will it be like a, a gradual line of improvement? Probably not. I think this unit will continue to have its troubles um, f- from time to time. It's just sort of the, the degree of those struggles that I think we're going to be monitoring the rest of this season. So uh, I'm curious to see what it looks like. And uh. Certainly it shouldn't have taken this long to get the offensive line to be passable, um, but that's where they're at. And they need to uh, sort of continue to play at that level. Next question is from at coffee, dark roast with the unfortunate season ending injury to wide receiver Joe Wilkins and the transfer of Lawrence keys is Xavier Watts going to go back to his old position, or is he going to continue on special teams? I haven't seen him on defense yet.
2: Um. You know, when I read the question the first time, I thought he – because I got asked this in my chat yesterday about where Watt's future position was next year, and and I think Coffee Dark Roast is asking about the rest this of year. this season. Right. I, I don't think he's moving back to offense this season. I think they have enough people, especially with Salerno, uh, a really good walk-on wide receiver. Now, if they were to have another injury, I guess maybe they could consider that. but. You know, I think Xavier – I wanted to call him Chris Watts. uh, Xavier (laughs) Watts, I think his future is on the defensive side of the ball when you think about who they're going to bring in at wide receiver next year. And I almost don't think he's going to be a a rover next year. I think he may be a safety, and I think that may be – he may be the Avery Davis of defense, you know, that ends up on defense – and, and a really good football player that just kind of needs to find his home. But I think they're getting him used to tackling and doing that kind of stuff. I think it would be unwise to move him back this year unless you absolutely had to. You still have, you know, numbers issues at linebacker, too. And I think next year, the clearest path to playing time for him may be at safety, Yeah, I think regardless of what position he's playing, he's going to continue to
1: play special teams, just to make that clear. Um, They need him on special teams. Uh, Part of the the lack of healthy linebackers requires more guys on special teams, so um, that that isn't going to change. I I still think the linebacker position is too thin to move him back to wide receiver, um, even though they're not necessarily using him on the de- uh, on defense yet but they're listing um, him as a co-starter but they keep listing him as an or option which is not <laughs> it's not how he's listed on the Andy insider depth chart um <laughs> but i i saw so i think they're going to keep him there i think the wide receiver depth has certainly been hurt but they also i think are comfortable playing the guys that are playing a lot so i don't know that how far like they're like now they're going to dip into Lorenzo Styles Jr. and Deion Colsey more, but I don't know that they're going to go beyond that. So I think, like, that would only then would you need to move Xavier Watts back to a receiver. And I, like, I think you, you mentioned with Matt Salerno. I think there's a possibility that they would be interested in seeing what he could do as well. Um, I, I think that would require them to move Avery Davis to an outside receiver role and then to let Matt Salerno play in the slot. But um, I, I still think that Xavier Watts, at least for this season, We'll, we'll stick at defense, and I, I, I do like your suggestion about him at safety. I'd be curious to see what that looks like because they do have a need at safety in the future moving forward. And another one from at Coffee Dark Roast is in regards to the rotation of the rover position, it seems as though Isaiah Pryor starts and Jack Kaiser finishes. Is this by design? What are their respective snap
2: counts? Um, again, Isaiah started games one, two, three. Kaiser started games four, five, and six. The snap counts break down, Kaiser 220, Isaiah 121, and in the Virginia Tech game it was 38 for Kaiser and 16 for Pryor.
1: Yeah, my my sense is there's a bit more trust in Kaiser and coverage and to play the full position, whereas Isaiah Pryor is someone they prefer to sort of playing downhill and see like more of a niche role for him. So that's why we're seeing it the way – I don't know that who starts and finishes is necessarily – I think, I think that's dependent on the situation rather than like they like Isaiah Pryor at the beginning of the game and Jack Kaiser at the end, which obviously we've seen the last three games they started Jack Kaiser. So that's not necessarily how they're designing it. But there are situations at the end of the game where they're throwing the ball more. So that's why Jack Kaiser is probably on the field more than Isaiah Pryor is in those situations. Next question is from Justin at The Real Putnam. With recruiting, why is football so heavily regional and it matters more how close or far away from home you are
2: and the weather, whereas basketball, it doesn't seem to matter? I haven't done the research on it. I mean, anecdotally, when I covered basketball, um, a lot of Indiana players, I covered Indiana and Purdue, and a lot of the players on those teams are from the Midwest. Um, So I didn't see that pattern there. Notre Dame recruited a lot on the East Coast because that's where the talent was and that's where they had the coaching staff had connections. Uh, But I guess. I'm really guessing here because I, yeah. let's assume your theory is correct. I mean, some of it has to do with basketball's played indoors. I mean, there's guys that are from Florida that they don't want to freeze their butts off in November playing in those cold games. And, and for them, the October games are cold too. Right. So that's maybe some of it. Um, but I haven't done the research on that. I've really only looked into football patterns. Yeah. I I'm not sure that the, I have, I have no idea if this is true or not. I would
1: not have guessed that is necessarily the case. I, I, I don't know what, what the data suggests, if, it, if that backs up Justin's theory here or not. Um, if, it, if it is true, um, I came up with a couple of theories. Maybe football is like once a week, so families are pretty more likely to attend, whereas basketball, you're playing multiple times a week, so you're not maybe thinking about making sure your family can attend because they're not going to be able to maybe come see you play on a Tuesday night Um, regardless of how close to home you live. I don't don't know. Maybe that's something to do with it. I think probably a bigger thing of basketball decisions have to be so much more about playing time because of your team size. Um, So I think that maybe basketball recruiting, the decisions are made less on like the surroundings, like things outside of like actually playing basketball. And so maybe that's why you don't necessarily stay geographically. And then the other thing I thought was, well, maybe – with all the traveling that happens in AAU and, and kids leaving at, at, at the high level of basketball to go to prep schools, maybe it's more natural to, 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 to go travel somewhere, or go farther away to play college basketball than, than it is in football. So those are some things that I threw out there, but I, I really don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure that there's
2: the correlation is exactly as it was stated or, or not. Well, and certainly the, the powers in basketball are in different areas of the country. Right. Than they are for football. I mean, New York State is especially New York City is terrible for football. Right. New York City for basketball is incredible for basketball. Right. So and and the Sun Belt doesn't dominate the players, even though there's a lot of population there. There's still tons of great players in the Rust Belt and in the Northeast Corridor. So it's just different.
1: Next question is from at Rich Morazzi. Coaching staffs normally and rightfully so think next game only. However, this feels like a dual track 2021 and 2022 plan of attack where they are trying to win every game, but also trying to get situated for next season more than they normally do. Am I crazy to think this?
2: You're not crazy um, because I wrote that in my column Saturday. I, I think that this is where those two tracks intercept sected Saturday night. I think you never want to sacrifice your current season for the run up to the next season. I just think they have a lot aligned that, that that they can do both at the same time without sacrificing one or the other. As we spoke about with Mike Golick Jr., a lot of those really young offensive linemen are some of their most talented guys. And Logan Diggs, is going to have to play next year because I don't think Kyron Williams is going to be here. And, you know, I think Joe Alt's going to be a starter, maybe not the left tackle, but probably the right tackle. Um, And so I think – and the commitment to Tyler Buckner, Jack Cohn's not going to be here next year. But if Tyler Buckner were the better quarterback, let's say he played at Helix High School in the fall, that there was no such thing as COVID – And he tore it up at Helix in La Mesa, California, and got some great experience against some really good competition. You know, maybe we're having a different conversation. Maybe Tyler Buckner was the starter. Um, And, again, if Jared or Brendan Clark doesn't get injured so badly with his knee, I'm not sure that Notre Dame jumped into the portal jumps into the portal with Jack Cohn. They may and they may not. I asked Tommy Reese that question point blank and he danced around it. He, <laughs> he didn't want to say that. He goes, the fact is we did. So um, So, um, I, I do think that both those are in a line, but I don't think you're sacrificing anything. I think you're playing your best players. And some of those players that are playing are are showing the team that they deserve that playing time. And I think, Diggs is a great example. I think we'll see more of Colsey and Styles in the second half, too. Yeah. I mean,
1: I understand, I, I get and I agree that there are things that are happening this season that will benefit Notre Dame next season. I just don't know that I buy that they are happening because they want to be better next season. I think they're happening because they need them this year. Um, and so I, I, I'm not the, the only thing that I, I, I so I don't know what when I, when I read this question, I said, "Well, I, I'm not sure what you would point to to support that that they're they are worried about 2022 with what they're doing this season." And my only thought was that there's a belief that the only reason they're playing Tyler Buckner is because it helps them off for next year more than it, than it would with by playing Drew Pine, um, because it seems like the the young guys everywhere else are needed. I mean, Logan Diggs came in late of the game because Chris Tyree got hurt. And they're they they do not trust Sebo this year, clearly, for some reason. Um, the Mitchell Evans and Kim Barong are playing because Michael Mayer is out of the lineup, and then Kane Barong played more because Mitchell Evans got ejected. Um, so I so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I I understand why people are curious that Tyler Buckner, after the success that Drew Pine had, that Tyler Buckner still ended up playing more and Drew Pine didn't go to and I Like I talked about earlier, I'm not sure that Brian Kelly has a great grasp of what's going on at quarterback. Um, But I don't I don't I don't think Brian Kelly played Tyler Buckner because he's afraid that it's going to be too hard to bench or. Sorry, I said that wrong. I don't think Brian Kelly didn't play Drew Pine because it's, it's going to be too hard to bench him at the beginning of next season for Tyler Buckner. I don't I don't think to me, there's not a correlation there, or at least I don't believe there is. And if there is, I don't. I don't. I think that doesn't speak very highly of Brian Kelly if he's doing that. Um, I think. I think he just believes that one. Cone, Jack Cohn brings more to of the office than Drew Pine does, and then the difference that Tyler Buckler can make in conjunction with Jack Cohn is is certainly different than what the difference Drew Pine would make in some sort of relief relief role. So, I, so. I, while I understand like there are benefits of things that are happening this year will extend to next year. I'm not sure that like the decisions are being made
2: with next year in mind. Do we, do you and I agree on that or do we disagree? I, I don't think I interpret it the same. I think the way I wrote it was that these two goals are parallel. The decisions that, that help this year are the same decisions that help next year. They're not in conflict with each other. Right. So you're not thinking one or the other. Right. I think Brian thinks Tyler Buckner is to the point that playing him is going to accelerate his growth curve. And that maybe right now Pine is here, but by playing – if you play Pine, he's going to get here. If you play Buckner, he's going to get here.
1: And for and- those that can't see the Eric screen yeah. and listening to the podcast, you had them even, and he moved Drew Pine a little bit up.
2: But then when he moved Buckner, he moved him higher than, than behind. So <laughs> <And then> Tyler <laughs> did the same hand motions, but just described it. <laughs> so um, so this, this is great, great podcasting. But what, what I'm saying is that a lot of times you would have conflicts with that. I don't sure. think there are. And Brian Kelly was adamant after the game that they felt like playing those freshmen in that environment was important. Now, so, again, I think he's thinking about important for the second half of this season. Right. But all these things, as Mike Golick was talking about earlier, Mike Golick Jr. was talking about when he came in for Braxton Cave at the end of the 2011 season and played center for four games, that helped set the stage for him the next year to be a starter at guard. And uh, so I think there's a huge benefit for these guys. The intention is to be playing for this year. I just think there's times where playing for the future and playing for the present would be in conflict with each other. I think they are parallel right now. So I think we probably agree. Yeah. we just have kind of different ways of looking at it. Sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think we agree more than we disagree there.
1: Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What are your mid-season grades for Brian Kelly, Tommy Reese, Marcus Freeman, Jeff Quinn, and Dell Alexander? If changes are necessary at season end, could you see Jeff Quinn move to an analyst as opposed to being gone completely? Also, do you think Brian Kelly would consider an experienced co-coordinator to work with Tommy Reese? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll tell you what. I wish Marie was in our press corps because I like to see her ask Brian Kelly these questions because these are great questions and I, I, I'm not sure that I have the answer. The most uncomfortable thing is, I am is giving grades. I usually don't give grades. I I taught an Italian class when my youngest son was a fourth grader at his school. And uh, I gave every kid in the class an A, but I thought they deserved it. But, you know, (laughs) it was kind of funny that every single kid in the class got an A. Um, So, but I'll I'll, I'll do this um, for Marie's benefit. I give BK a B um, and not a K. I'll give Tommy Reese a B minus because I think he's at at a really difficult assignment. And yet I think if you talk about elite offensive coordinators in the country, guys with experience, I think they would have done better with it. And if you're going to put Tommy Reese in that role, you have to grade him the same you would grade them. I would give Marcus Freeman a B plus. I would give Jeff Quinn a C minus. I think he's had a very difficult assignment, but I'm not sure that he's handled it as well as he could. Um, And I give Del Alexander a C, and and it's really difficult for me to judge him, and it always has been. Um, It's it's difficult because it's really a mixed bag of results. I mean, Kevin right. Austin has kind of been up and down, but you know what? Kevin Austin hasn't played a lot of football. He had six career catches coming into this year, right. but he's an incredibly immensely talented player. Should Styles and Colsey have more catches? I don't know if the other guys are being productive. So, so those are my grades and I, you know, I can't wait to see how they are grading me um, <laughs> on my stories. Um, okay. So could, could, Jeff Quinn go back and be an analyst. I think he was really good at it. Um, Again, if you're going to make that move, you really have to have someone in mind that you think is markedly better, um, that's going to come in and transform that line into a much better than average line next year. And you don't have the, and, and you would have to have the thought that you don't have the confidence that Jeff Quinn could do that. And again, he's coming off a Joe Moore award runner up finish. Um, And then the last thing is about the, um, the maybe older veteran coach to kind of groom Tom, Tommy Reese. I think the time to do that was 2020. I think if, um, and I think that option was available, and Brian Kelly turned it down. In fact, I know that option was available, and Brian Kelly decided against that particular scenario. Now, you could make an argument that John McNulty is kind of in that role in, in that he's been an offensive coordinator before. He's coached a lot of different position groups. He's got some history with Tommy. I think that was Tommy's choice for that role. But I don't really see him as the guy that's kind of the – guiding hand there, helping Tommy accelerate through the growth a little bit faster. I think Brian Kelly is the guy that's doing that. I think that would have been honestly the ideal thing. And I, you know, if I'm Tommy Reese, I'm probably throwing stuff at my, you know, phone right now and saying, what's this guy talking about? But I think the risk with Tommy Reese wasn't whether, whether he was going to be a good, it's when he was going to be great. and um, so that growth curve was Brian Kelly's gamble. That's the best I can, I can say there. And, you know, I'm going to shut up and let Tyler talk. Now.
1: <laughs> I know there's a lot to say there. Marie does a good question. D- good job of asking questions. That could be entire podcasts rather than <laughs> five minutes on a yeah. podcast. Um, I I'll, I'll start with the, the end. I think McNulty was, was supposed to play that role. I think it's hard for us to get a sense of what he, his role is because we don't, we don't really know him at all. I, I actually interviewed him like alone on a zoom and he hasn't not been made available to the media beyond that. I don't think. Um, and that was, that was for a, a feature I did on him after he was hired. So that was, that was last year. Um, I think a he, special section. I think he was, I think he's in the press box with, with uh, Tommy Reese during the game. So I, I do think that the, he is that sort of sounding board for him. I'm not sure to like what extent and the relationship, and he has coordinator experience. So I think that is there. I, I think if there's some suggestion that Tommy Reese isn't cutting it as the offensive coordinator, I think there's got to be a clean break. Um, I, and so I, I think I see the same way with Jeff Quinn. I don't think he's moving to an analyst role. The analyst role, and I think this is sort of the part of what people don't like about Jeff Quinn is that he became an analyst at Notre Dame before becoming the offensive line coach. Um, meaning that was some indictment on him that he wasn't wanted elsewhere. But um, that's sort of the coaching cycle these days with uh, failed offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators or head coaches. They go somewhere that they know someone and they become an analyst until they get to their next role that they want. Um, And so I don't think like Jeff Quinn being demoted to that role would be something that would be good for Notre Dame. I think he would need to move on um, and look for a job elsewhere if if Notre Dame is going to going to sever ties there
2: go ahead let me inject something too a lot of people don't know this Jeff Quinn was the offensive line coach for eight days in 2010 you know Notre Dame has that long protracted before they announce somebody because they're vetting them well in that eight-day period he got the head coaching job at Buffalo and took that but he would have been the offensive line coach in 210 back to Tyler
1: all right. Now time for grades. My dad is a teacher, so I guess I will t- put my teacher hat on. Uh, our grades are pretty similar. I think we I, we I had slightly worse grades for Jeff Quinn and Brian Kelly. I gave Brian Kelly a C+. Plus. I don't think that he recognized the limitations of the offensive line heading into the season, and he certainly hasn't handled the quarterback situation very well. Um, those are things that I think he, as the head coach, needs to have a better sense for. Now, some of that is re- related with Tommy Reese as well, but I think that that falls on the head coach. I think he still managed to guide this team through victories that could have been losses. So that speaks to sort of the program's culture and the preparation of the players and to be able to handle game winning situations. Um, so I think that is more of a, like a long term thing that that has built into why this team is able to get to where they're at. But I think some of the issues that they did not anticipate or did not have an answer for right away. I think those fall on Brian Kelly. Um, Tommy Reese is now, and I, I know it seems kind of weird. Like, okay, I'm giving Brian Kelly a C plus for going five and one, but I think just the way that these these games have gone that that seems that seems fair to me. Tommy Reese, I had a B minus as well. Um, sort of the same things. I don't think he was fully prepared to off, operate the offensive. The opera oper, operate man easy for me is to operate the offense with such a poor offensive line. I think he's made adjustments to account for that. Um, maybe a little bit too slowly. Um, than he should have. I give him a slightly better grade than Brian Kelly because I think he gets credit for Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner being prepared to succeed in the situations that they've been thrown into. Um, and that that's not easy. Now having a better sense of why Jack Cohn can't uh, play at the level they need him to, that, that falls on Tommy Reese as well. But I think that he gets some positive things for doing that and showing a willingness to adapt in a tough situation. I gave Marcus Freeman a B-plus. The defense has seemingly improved throughout the year um, as he's got a better sense for the personnel. The biggest concern for me with the defense is that they've given up a handful of sort of gut punch drives when the defense could really use a stop, whether it was the go-ahead touchdown that Toledo scored, Cincinnati scoring at the end of the first half and then extending the lead in the fourth quarter, Virginia extending its lead to eight points last Saturday in the fourth quarter. Um so that, that that's something I can't I I don't get a good I'm not sure why that's happening why why it is why it is that way but um, that's something that's the the biggest area improvement I think the defense has for the second half of the season Jeff Quinn I gave a D plus he's been dealt a tough hand but I don't think the rest of the line outside of Patterson um, played to the standard they needed to and they were struggling as well so this past weekend was a sign that improvement may be taking hold. Um, but I don't think it should have taken this long. Um, I think his grade can, could change the most, um, I think, but I don't know that it, it's going to get maybe higher than a C because I'm not sure that um, I could give it better than a C based on how poorly this the start of the season was. Um, he did not have this group prepared to the level that it needed to be. Um, and then Dale Alexander, I gave a C. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of in agreement with you. Like, it's hard, like, yeah, it's every stunning. day – yeah, Avery Davis play, has played well. Kevin Austin Jr. Has, has shown his potential, but he hasn't been consistent. Brayden Lindsey, I think, is maybe the biggest disappointment of the wide receiver group right now, um, but I think he's improved as the season has gone on. I sort of liked with the role that they had found for Joe Wilkins Jr. I think maybe he could have played more. Um, and So I think the rotation and having a better sense for that is probably the thing that I ding him the most for. Um, Lawrence Key's leaving midseason reflects on him even if maybe that's a little bit unfair and and, um, maybe it reflects on Lawrence Keys that he's not willing to stick through the season in this situation but I think there's clearly some sort of repeating issue where he's not getting enough he's not getting the full wide receiver group to commit to his vision um, and that it seems to sort of buck its head um, repeatedly throughout his tenure Um, and then I think I mean Deion Colsey and Lawrence Lorenzo Styles haven't Played big roles yet, but I think they've shown that they are playable. Um, I'm not sure how reliable they are, but I think they have room to to prove that at the end of the season.
2: And and I will add something: people, you know, were on Brian Kelly, Tommy Reese, and Dell Alexander for not playing Jordan Johnson more. He has played in one game and he has not been injured for UCF, and he has zero catches so far through half a season with them. So there's something going on there where he is not reaching his potential. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, if you cover football
1: long enough, people are going to blame the coaching staff before they blame the recruiting services, which probably isn't fair. Like the coaches get paid a lot more money to know what's going on and have a better sense of what's actually going on. Now, certainly coaches, the recruiting services can do a good job and, and vice versa. But like, I think, uh, the assumption that a, a kid isn't living up to his expectation maybe could have been a reflection on the expectation was too high to begin with. All right. We've got a couple more questions here. We we're not doing a good job of doing short podcasts this season, but I think that's a reflection of how the season has gone. Uh, next question is for Douglas McCannelly at D underscore After watching the first six games, have you changed your preseason
2: prediction for the season? Please explain your answer in essay format. Um, In essay format, I will say I do not change my predictions because they are predictions. And so to change it is like having a concept of crystal ball and recruiting and changing it several times as the recruit changes his mind. Yeah, you make a prediction and you stick with it. Now, do I think... uh, that this team has the same floor and the same ceiling as I did at the beginning of the season. No, I think they're both. I think the ceiling is lower. Um, and and I mean the possible ceiling, I predicted them to go 10 and two. And I think that's probably what will happen. And if they, they could still go 11 and one, but they won't be the 11 and one team. I think they could have been. Um, right. because of the offensive line and the quarterback play kind of sabotage that. So that's my essay, and that's probably a C essay, but <laughs> I think my conviction deserves an A. I so on Douglas's behalf, I'm going to follow up. So let's let's throw the
1: preseason prediction out of the, out of the conversation. What would you, what is your prediction for the the next six games? Would you predict five and one?
2: Yeah, I think there's. I think they should win all six and be favored, but I think they have, they're playing with too thin of a margin of error and they're going to get into a turnover game like they did against Cincinnati and they're going to lose that game. Virginia could be that game because Virginia has got a prolific quarterback. And if they play, you know, a little bit of defense, which they don't typically, um, you know, then you can get a shootout with them because they're, they're, quarterback Brennan Armstrong is really good yeah I I
1: haven't changed my prediction either I predicted 10 and 2 as well Um, it certainly has looked different than I imagined with the closer results a bad offensive line and some shaky quarterback play but the schedule has also become easier um, down the stretch so I can't in good conscience predict two more losses yet Um, so like you said anything is kind of possible because the margin for error is is very slim Um, if the offensive line plays poorly and the quarterbacks aren't reliable. Um, so I have not changed my prediction yet, but, um, certainly, and and we make predictions on a weekly basis on the podcast, um, certainly may end up predicting more losses down the stretch if, if things don't improve in certain areas. Uh, last question at, from at D.O. Carol one. Which of the last six games will be least stressful and which will be most stressful? My cardiologist thanks you in advance.
2: I think the least stressful will be the Navy game, even though they're improving. They took SMU to the wire um, last week an SMU team that's undefeated in, in the top 25. But I think this is the worst Navy team in a long time. Um, and then I think Virginia is going to be the most stressful. It'll be on the road. Um, Virginia is really self-destructive, um, offensively. They are number six in total offense and they don't, it doesn't reflect it in their wins and, and some other things, but they're awful on defense. Uh, but again, if you get in a game where you have a couple turnovers and you give that offense a couple more possession, then that's a stressful game. That'll be a game like the Virginia Tech game.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm in agreement with you on those predictions. I, I'll i lay out the other games just so maybe Dio Carroll one can uh, have some things to distract him on those most distressful games plan, <laughs> have, some, have some other plans ready at, at hand. I think other than the Virginia game, I think the Stanford game has a chance to be the most stressful as well. Um, I think the USC and North Carolina games are somewhere in the middle and In addition to Navy being the least stressful, I would say Georgia Tech's probably in that same tier. So that's how I sort of am looking at the last six games on Notre Dame's schedule. All right, that's it for today's marathon episode of Pot of Gold. For the dedicated listeners who stick with us until the end, I wanted to offer up the opportunity to send us guest suggestions for future podcasts. So if you have anyone you'd love to hear from, send a tweet to Eric or myself, and uh, we will – See if uh, we agree with that suggestion and and want to make that happen down the line. Eric's our star booker, so it will ultimately come down to whether or not Eric likes you or not. But no, I'm kidding. Uh, We we are open for suggestions and always, always looking for good ideas. Um, If you don't subscribe to us already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week for a USC preview. Until then, stick with ndinsider.com for your Notre Dame football bye week coverage needs.